Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we are discussing Ad Astra. Directed by James Gray, Ad Astra is an original space thriller that's being compared to Interstellar and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Brad Pitt stars as Roy McBride, an astronaut whose father, played by Tommy Lee Jones, went missing on a mission to Neptune 27 years ago. Now Roy must retrace his father's steps through space in a more cerebral twist on a traditional sci-fi blockbuster about saving the world. So I saw this last night. You saw it a couple days ago. I loved it. I thought it had a couple of issues, but um, I was really sort of transported by it. And I think you liked it a little bit less. So we will have an interesting conversation about this, I think. I went with a mutual friend of ours who did not like it and kept laughing at inopportunely <laughs> serious moments, which was not optimal. So I would like to see this it is again. A very serious film. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to see it again anyway. It seems like a movie that would kind of benefit from that. But particularly given that, I think it would be nice. But uh, I loved it. And I love James Gray, the director in general. So I had that kind of background context. And we'll talk about that. But um yeah, I've been watching all of Brad Pitt's movies for a project and found it really interesting in that context also. So um, we'll we'll have that to discuss. Uh, what was your sort of general impression of the film? Well, I thought Brad Pitt was incredible. Like his performance was really fantastic. Obviously, he's played like a really wide range of roles in his career and he's very famous. Um, but I would say he's definitely better known in the public sphere for playing quite big characters, a lot of charismatic personalities or a sort of goofy comedy. Obviously he's done like tons of dramas, but like his best known roles are along those lines. And this is a very sort of internal, very understated performance. It's also like a really, really well-drawn character. Obviously there are there's like millions of movies out there which are A, about just middle-aged men coming to terms with their daddy issues and about repressed white men. You know, it's not exactly undertrod territory in fact there's like multiple movies which are just about men and their paternal relationships in space like the bbc did a little mini documentary to kind of tie in with this where they just like went through all of the space dad movies <laughs> it's a very popular and fully covered subgenre and also kind of structurally this film is very conventional kind of straightforward space blockbuster like he's got to save the world um, so in that regard, I think the way people are talking about it perhaps over eggs the ways in which it's like unusual. But that character specifically was fantastic. And obviously from a technical perspective, like James Gray is such a skilled director, like visually cinematography choices and the production design in this are great, even though it's not making any particularly unique or unusual design choices. Like it's minimalist architecture and... Uh, NASA inspired space stuff like it's intentionally quite realistic it still looks really beautiful and all of like the action scenes are gorgeous and like really well shot and thrilling which you know is great to see because it's like you get to see like a grown-up blockbuster which isn't like too weird so he's got all of the stuff he's got all his ducks lined up correctly but for me like the Brad Pitt performance was by far the highlight and otherwise I was like, okay, well done. But I far preferred High Life um, because it successfully made me feel much more miserable and nauseous. And um, <laughs> I mean, we'll go into the end of this film towards the end of the podcast so we can kind of circumvent the spoiler situation for listeners who've not watched the movie. But with this film, I was like, okay, well done. But primarily I'm just like good character study. Everything else is like, fine. I've seen it before. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about the specifics at the end. At the end, as you say, I think the end is not great, and the reason for that is that the studio fucked it up. So there's some stuff going on there. But I think the reason I appreciated it more, or one of the reasons, was that while Brad Pitt saving the world is certainly a thing that happens in this movie, I don't think that that's what the movie is about at all. Like that was so superfluous to me. No, it's as, not. Like the movie is about God. That is what this film is about. The movie is about daddy issues and God. And so the sort of saving the world thing was like, sure. Yeah, I think I said that in my review, actually. It's like, that is the framework they use. And they're intentionally using this extremely palatable, straightforward, also quite easy to advertise framework to tell a story that is like 100% about themes and concepts rather than story. Yeah. And for me, that was fine. Like, I was totally willing to be on board with that until the very end, which we'll talk about later. 
But the sort of genesis of the movie, I found quite interesting. The New Yorker did a profile of James Gray last week, which I highly recommend. I found it really interesting. And his whole thing has forever been that he is into like classicism in cinema terms. He is a huge student of classic cinema. He's seen basically everything. And if you watch uh, some of his other movies, they're all done in a very kind of traditional way. Like he's not making experimental films. His favorite movie of mine, which I have mentioned before, is The Immigrant with Marion Cotillard, which came out around five years ago and was screwed over by Harvey Weinstein. So no one has ever seen it. And that is also very much sort of an homage to earlier films takes place in 1920s New York and it's got all these kind of references to old movies and um, that's still his favorite of of his own films and is also the one that most focuses on a female character in a very very deep way which this movie uh, doesn't at all but um, in the New Yorker article he they describe how this film was sort of conceived which is really interesting I'll just read it so it says Gray got the idea for Ad Astra several years ago while thinking about the loneliness inherent in American ambition and decided he had to set the film in outer space, the last true terra incognita and a lonely zone. He and his uh, co-writer watched all the space films they could find and then started composing the screenplay the way Gray usually does. He bought a stack of five by seven inch index cards, jotted down ideas for scenes and looked for common threads. The threads began to coalesce in an outline. So basically, like, they just watched every space movie and were like, what happens in space movies? (laughs) (laughs) Which is precisely how this film feels. Yes. You know, it's like if you crossed Interstellar and The Martian, which are like the two most recent, really big mainstream blockbuster space movies. I've not seen Gravity, but I presume there's some gravity in there too, with kind of the more deep thematic content you you saw in High Life. Although obviously these films were being made at the same time, so I'm not suggesting it copied High Life, but it is very, like, recognizably derivative in an intentional way, but because the film is smart and thoughtful, you're not like, oh, he's copied people. Yes, and the interstellar stuff is interesting because obviously it shares a lot with that movie thematically. Um, In that film, Matthew McConaughey sort of, uh, like, abandons his children, which in this movie he doesn't have children, but he abandons his children and, like, goes off into deep space for a long time and, like, time passes and... But like tonally, Interstellar is basically the opposite of this because yes. kind of the whole point of this film is it's really obvious from like the first 30 seconds of the movie. They make it so clear just in case anyone misses it. But it's like Brad Pitt's character is this figure who is just living his whole life behind a facade. Like he outwardly is like the most competent, just straightforward astronaut. Like he's always doing his job perfectly but he's also kind of like he's a likable guy he's very easy he's got good social skills like there's this kind of detail towards the beginning where they say oh his heartbeat never goes above 80 beats per minute like he's always just on there right and his internal monologue just makes it really clear that this whole thing is fake he is able to perform like this because he just doesn't like he's not getting stressed about stuff because he doesn't care about stuff like he's I mean he's not like traditionally depressed but he's depressed I think the word I used in my review was anhedonic he doesn't have any ambition or drive he's just like going through the motions and there's various points in the movie where he's being asked about his feelings like the most common thread is that because he's in this really high pressure job he's constantly going through psych evaluations and mostly they come in the form of kind of automated evaluations so a computer is asking him basic questions about how he's feeling and he wears like an electrode that checks his heartbeat and he answers them and his answers are always like very fact-based and like occasionally he will sort of say something about his actual feelings rather than like oh I had some sleep and I'm feeling functional but it's always very superficial and it's kind of intentionally just meant to be basically what he thinks people are hoping to hear from him realistically. And towards the beginning, like when he's informed that his missing father may not actually be missing, um, his employers, like the kind of NASA analog where he works, are sort of like, oh, I'm sure this was really hard on you when your father went missing. How did you deal with that? Like, how did you feel? And he kind of talks about how his mother felt. They just make it so clear that he like cannot express or even acknowledge the idea of himself having emotions and it takes like most of the film to like excavate those emotions out and kind of examine them whereas in Interstellar tonally that film is really hysterical not in the funny sense but because like one of the main most memorable moments in that film is Matthew McConaughey like screaming with tears like tears and sweat and snot like going down his face and like all this music which is pounding away and families torn apart and crying it's just like very intense emotion in this it's so repressed 
that the more traditional version of Ad Astra would involve kind of a third act moment where he snaps and goes American Psycho. But that is a much less interesting version of what actually happens, which is that, you know, he doesn't snap because he needs to like process this stuff, but can't fully. So it sort of is much more a decline and like an expansion rather than like a sudden moment where he's like, okay, right, I've realized I'm completely fucked up. Yes. And like I love Interstellar in spite of its insane ending. And Matthew McConaughey is the perfect person for that movie, right? Because he is so good at doing those big emotions. Like the scene you're describing where he just like sobs hysterically. I was crying in the theater because I was just like, oh my God, the feelings, like it's too much. Whereas this is basically the inverse of that in a really interesting way. Like you're saying, the sort of thing where he has to give these psych evaluations is such a perfect allegory for the way men are asked to behave in society, right? They're technically asking him how he feels, but they don't want him to have feelings. Because if he expresses real like upset and emotion, then he's not allowed to continue with his job. So he's being asked to perform this sort of like, it's all fine. It's all fine. It's great. It's fine. Which is how men are generally expected to behave, which I thought was quite ingenious. Yeah. And also kind of, I think there's a certain implication that if someone had on a personal level actually tried really hard to get through his shell like obviously he would have resisted because like he doesn't want that to happen but like it probably would have been doable but there's no one around who's close to him partly because he's been pushing people away like his closest relationship presumably was with his wife Liv Tyler but kind of the point is that they like don't have a relationship they're separated it's really clear that like he was physically and emotionally distant obviously he was in space all the time he wasn't opening up to her and the points where he actually does start to open up are because Donald Sutherland's character kind of shows up in an official capacity to like accompany him on the first leg of his journey to follow his father into space. It starts off on earth and then because he has to go on this mission to send messages to his father to be like are you actually alive and is your mission fucking with electrical storms on earth please stop. Donald Sutherland is like his official babysitter and it's also a great Sutherland role because it's this person who clearly has like a ton of emotional intelligence and is slightly menacing but not like villainous and clearly is able to ask the right questions and has like a really piercing gaze and it's just such a great character who like on the page could easily be really simple but that character is perfect because it's that particular actor playing him and you can tell that if he was there for longer he could like chisel through and figure out what the fuck's up with Brad Pitt. Yes but he isn't because something happens to him. And you have all these characters in the movie who sort of appear for a short period of time and then go away. And so Brad Pitt is, you know, they kind of make indentations on him, but he's alone for much of the film. And so it's sort of like going through these little compartments in a way, like narratively, that he's slowly making progress, but it's a one-man show because it is really about... For people who were like, oh, I saw Ruth Negga was in this film... I also was excited for Ruth Negga because she's really awesome and um, like she's not quite got to the point where she's broken through into like really major roles yet. In the trailer, because the trailer is like intentionally avoiding spoilers, it mostly shows clips that either are really kind of detached from the narrative, you know, chase scenes or like from the first half of the film. So I was like, okay, right, Ruth Negga probably shows up in the second half and that's why she's not in the trailer. But then I watched the film and I was like, Ruth Negga's in this fucking movie for five minutes. (laughs) So so if you're someone who's like, oh, interesting, uh, just FYI, she's in this movie for five minutes. Not really criticism of the film, but um, she's third build, which is wild. And Morgan did suggest to me that probably she had some scenes cut. <laughs> yeah, I felt I really liked her stuff. I thought she was good and I liked the scenes that she had. But I strongly suspect that there were a, was a couple scenes cut. It just felt a bit odd the way that that stuff was cut together. Like there was just something missing. Maybe I'm wrong. I obviously don't know, but it felt a little bit off to me. I mean, this film was being edited until the last moment. Like it was actually, the release date was delayed, which is often a bad sign. But I think this is something that happens occasionally with James Gray movies. But it kind of, like an earlier version, I think maybe screened at film festivals or something. But this was filmed like in 2017 and it was meant to come out like a few months ago and then eventually came out this September. And in one of the trailers, I'm sure I remember seeing like a shot of 
some kind of scenario that was showing what life was like on Earth. And that was something that I think both of us kind of felt was missing from the film. Because obviously the purpose of this movie is like, it's really explicitly a character study. So I don't feel like I need a great deal of world building. Like a lot of that is just done through the environment he's in, right? But um, although we kind of see what the situation is like on Mars. There's this base and there's kind of various disputed territories because no one owns Mars. So there's like space pirates. Um, sorry, no one own, owns the moon. So there's like space pirates on the moon, which is a cool concept. You do not fucking know what's happening on Earth. And it doesn't even feel like, oh, he's detached from society. It's just like, I kind of kept thinking, what's the socioeconomic situation here, right? Because, oh, Earth is like got this really affluent space program, which is doing great and the only situations where we see what's happening with like the average population is news reports about how these mysterious alleged cough storms are causing havoc. And it's like, what is life like on Earth? I don't know. And that if, if they'd even just put in like a couple of scenes, a few seconds or something, I would have been like, okay, that's fine. Uh, but they didn't. So it's kind of like that was something that I felt was really missing from the world building. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that while I was watching it and because I was quite transported by the direction and so was kind of just happy to be watching the film. But when it was over, I was sort of like, hmm, I could have done a little more of that. And uh, Justin Chang's review in the LA Times, which I enjoyed very much and was a little more critical of the movie than I felt, but I thought was very insightful, was talking about the world building in general, not just the Earth stuff, but like, what is happening with space like how do they travel so fast like etc because like it describes it describes itself right at the beginning it's like oh this is the near future and like the blurb at the beginning of the film is a this is the near future and b earth is like very concerned about finding alien life and like obviously from a practical sense it's clear that earth is much more interested in the kind of minerals and stuff on, on on mars and the moon but like the whole purpose of brad pitt's father tommy lee jones going to neptune is this like big extensive mission to see if they can make contact with any kind of alien life which as morgan said is you know search for god whatever but it's like this is in some ways maybe like a utopian society right the two options are either there's like a colossal divide between rich and poor which would be kind of realistic from our perspective currently in history where like just some countries are pouring a fuck ton of money into the space program and everyone else is in the shit or it's like kind of a fantasy future where it's all star trekky and they are able to invest this much because it's so unclear i was like well what especially since instead of it being this sort of more fairy tale environment like high life like obviously high life kind of depicts life on earth is like clearly it's awful and that film's all about incarceration and it's very dark you don't need kind of specific world building because the tone isn't there whereas in this it is like an extremely quote-unquote realistic tone much like the martian or interstellar because you've got this kind of nasa aesthetic and you've got all this kind of space science and sort of stuff that looks relatively similar to a real life lunar buggy the pillow and blanket on his commercial flight to the oh, moon so cost $125. <laughs> and then he, part of his, uh, you know, voiceover when he's on the moon about all the commercial stuff there is like, my father would have hated this. Like, this is sort of the, this is wrong, whatever. So I don't think the implication is that like everything's going great on Earth. Yeah. Right? But, it's very capitalist. <laughs> yeah. But they don't really go into that. And one of Justin Chang's points in this review is like one of James Gray's skills as a director is in building a world and setting and production design like the immigrant recreates 1920s New York in an unbelievably evocative and precise way and the lost city of zed his last movie takes place largely in the amazon and then also in um, england in around the same period and you very much get the sense of like what that was like in a very effective way and this is kind of missing that and it's hard to tell again like whether that was a editing issue well, i think or... this was like the first film he made i think where everything was just built on a soundstage because he'd come off this film where like a lot of it was like literally filmed in a rainforest yes and like i saw kind of an interview with james gray where he was talking about like it's very daunting to build an entire world on a soundstage and like obviously that is what blockbuster type filmmakers are made. like the star wars people are doing that but the infrastructure they have behind that in terms of like creatives is far bigger than what james gray had which was James Gray's ideas and then his production designer and cinematographer and then deciding which angles to film the idea that he just made up in his head kind of thing and had built. So it's different from the typical studio blockbuster situation. 
Yeah. Well, I kind of wanted a little more explanation of some things. I do want to stress that like for the most part, I found the production design very impressive. The production design is gorgeous. Yeah. And like there's a lot of really interesting lighting choices. The cinematographer is Hoyt van Hoytemer, which is the guy who did Interstellar 2. Yes. And I was very affected just by the visuals of the movie. As I keep saying, James Gray is just an incredible director. And aesthetically, this film is just extraordinary. I've been going to all of these New York Film Festival movies this week, uh, many of which have been quite bad. And even the ones that have been good, with uh, one exception that really was beautiful, like they're, they're all working on very small budgets. And so a lot of them don't look great. And even if they do look good, like the scope is just much smaller, which is what it is. And this movie does not have that problem. And it was such a pleasure to me to watch something of this scale and beauty on a big screen. And obviously plenty of big budget movies look terrible because they're made by people who don't know what they're doing, but James Gray really does. And because the movie is so much about the sublime, the shots of space and stuff happening in space, I found just like tremendous. The stuff on the moon is great. There's a shot where they're on this sort of buggy going through the moon before they kind of get ambushed where Brad Pitt just puts his hand up and like the moon dust is sort of streaming through it that I just thought was incredible. And then when he gets deeper into space, there's also a lot of sort of amazing aesthetic stuff going on. And all of that really fit with the sort of larger themes about God, which basically Tommy Lee Jones is like the Old Testament God who doesn't care about you. Yeah. I have to confess, I was like not thinking about the God stuff. I was mainly thinking about the gender stuff. (laughs) Like that's not that that's not what the movie is about, of course. Like that's very much what the film is about. But one of the things that made me find the movie so interesting was that in addition to all of the very obvious space references, and the other one that um, we mentioned in the intro, like 2001 Space Odyssey is all over this movie. And one of the things I appreciated about it is that like I'd seen 2001 when I was in college, but um, not again until last year, I think. And I saw it on a huge screen and one of the best movies ever made, period. But seeing it again, I was like, oh, every single space movie is derivative of this to like an insane degree. And most of them kind of try to pretend like they're not. And this one didn't. Like This movie was just like, yes, we're going to put a big fucking monkey in this movie just to remind you that <laughs> everything comes from 2001. And I actually thought it was better to just own that in a way, right? Because that movie invented the genre in such a direct way that I kind of appreciated the, and it's not just the monkey, like the whole movie owes a lot to that. But the thing that differentiated this from a lot of other space movies is that I think it's also hugely influenced by Terrence Malick. And the voiceover in this, which is pretty continuous and is very kind of sober and a bit self-serious and this is like my friend could not take it and was like laughing throughout the voiceover and Terrence Malick's movies almost all have that kind of voiceover and are mostly about God and that kind of spirituality and seriousness of purpose and earnestness felt very Malick to me and the cinematography wasn't like his recent films which are I mean most people, even if you haven't seen a Malick movie, if you're interested in cinema, kind of know what that's like, like the, you know, fields of wheat and the light coming through them or whatever. But there was something about the visuals that brought me to that place a little bit. And that kind of widening out to a larger purpose made me think of him. And that was, I think, why I appreciated the movie so much, even though I did have some issues with it, was that it felt like it was trying to do something bigger. And the Brad Pitt performance, as you mentioned at the beginning, like, I just think that it's extraordinary. So I've been watching all of his movies because I want to write something about him. And uh, he's great in a lot of stuff. He's bad in a lot of stuff. It really depends on how good the movie is, I think. If he's in a bad movie, he's just bad. Like, he's not one of those actors who can just be good in anything. It has to be a good film. And also he has, like, a relationship with this director. Yes. So he's been good friends with James Gray for a long time. He produced the movie. The movie was definitely, like, built for him, so he was going to play this role. But even when he's played more recessive characters, like as you said earlier, he's very known for playing sort of like big charismatic characters, but he has played more contained 
men in sort of critique of masculinity movies, including The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which is one of my favorite films, and also Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, which bears a lot of similarities to this. But this is by far the most recessive performance of his that I have seen. And I found it just like unbelievably, unbelievably affecting. And then when he finally gets out to his father, just the way that they're interacting with each other, I found really moving and not necessarily what you would expect from a movie like this. And there were kind of references to religious stuff leading up to that point. But obviously, this it is allegorical. But I think it really is about like, he's playing Jesus in this movie. It's a Jesus movie. And uh, I just found the way that all of that was done really effective. And um, there's a shot near the end where after various things have happened, where he's just sort of gazing up into like, the expansive space that felt like it was summing up a lot of what the movie was about. Yeah, I just found it very, very moving. Even if the film wasn't perfect, like, I, as we've said, there were a couple of things that didn't quite work. The Liv Tyler role is nonsense. How he got her to be in this movie, because it's clearly a reference to Armageddon, right? Like, where she's the one left yeah. on Earth. And, like, is she friends with someone? And were they just like, hey, want to be in this movie because of Armageddon? Like, she has to know that that's why. But she has, like, three lines of dialogue. Like, it's just, it's absurd. It's absurd. Although, actually, we should talk about the ending in a second. But yeah. I just remembered another film that I think is, like, a really good movie to watch in conjunction with this, which is, I think, kind of the other half of this film's influences that's, like, basically the opposite of its more spiritual side, which is... I was really glad to have seen the Apollo 11 documentary Yes, before watching this. Like, obviously, this film wasn't kind of made after that documentary came out, but that documentary comes from NASA footage of the moon landing. You know, it, it's a, it just takes, like, a timeline of the preparation and then the journey to the moon with kind of... And then the whole thing is just, like, footage of those astronauts at work and then the massive team who were helping them get to the moon and back. And a lot of that was already kind of public domain through NASA and then like a lot of it was new material. But the kind of very specific vocal cadence that you get in communications between astronauts in this film is more realistic and accurate than any other space movie I've seen, I think, right? Because it is like a very recognizable style. You hear it as well in kind of pilots and air traffic control and stuff. It's like the combination of like the very confident but non-cocky certainty that you know what you're doing with your job but also sort of like an easygoing dry sense of humor and that is very present among the main I guess the main characters in Apollo 11 one of the guys I forgot which one is like more funny and the other guy is more practical and kind of you get like this back and forth between the people um, on earth and in space part of it is like they're you know making sure that everyone's staying chill in a really high stress environment but also part of it is just the way that this type of personality type functions right and that was so present in this like it was partly present in Brad Pitt because when he's putting on this front at work his most kind of smooth conversations are when he is just talking in that style where he doesn't have to say anything about himself and is just talking about his job and is talking to someone who's miles away and he doesn't have to see their face and he's like wearing a helmet so that's ideal for him because there's no emotional stress to that whatsoever but also even more so among the other astronaut characters because obviously once he's kind of traveling in space there's like a period where he is a member of a crew and the way they are kind of talking with each other is like a more authentic version of that kind of Apollo 11 NASA conversation you hear in these recordings. You're just like, man, this is good. Like they have got the tone down. And those are like, I mean, the actors are like not name actors. Like they intentionally just have like a bunch of people who are just random people you've probably seen in something, you know. But um, yeah, they were great. That was just like a really good touch. Yeah, I was also really struck by that. Apollo 11 is my favorite movie of the year so far. I It would take like a masterpiece to knock it off. I fucking loved it. And one of the other things that I was thinking about watching this was that um, they were monitoring their um, heart rates when they were doing the moon landing. And Buzz Aldrin, who is the sort of prototypical, just kind of like cocky astronaut figure, his heart rate when they're landing didn't go above 89 or something, which is, as we were saying, like one of the 
sort of key descriptors of Brad Pitt's character in this, right? Is that his heart rate never goes above whatever. And he's just like never stressed. Right. And then Neil Armstrong is like 150 or something. Like he's completely flipping the fuck out. And obviously he's not externalizing that because they're professionals. They have to deal with this. But it's just something that gets sort of mentioned in the movie because it's obviously being read out by the people in Houston, I guess. And um, it was so interesting to me watching it because Neil Armstrong is very recessive in all the footage. I mean, for that, the Damien Chazelle movie, First Man, which I haven't seen yet, but do want to see, is about him and is about him being kind of this repressed guy. But you can sense that he is really stressed. Like, you can just tell that he's really freaked out. And meanwhile, Buzz Aldrin's like, it's all cool, man. Great, we're going to space. <laughs> um, and that was the part of the way you got information about them was really interesting to me. And so the fact that that was a piece of information about him in this movie also was fascinating. And yeah, all of the secondary performances struck me as totally perfect in that way. Aside from Natasha Lyonne, who is in this film. Oh my God. <laughs> for like 30 so fucking seconds. And I was like, what the fuck is happening right now? She just shows up as like basically the receptionist on Mars. <laughs> and it's like, this is Natasha Lyonne. And then of course she's only in like one scene, but it's so jarring, but in kind of a good way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole theater burst out laughing. It was the one moment of levity in the whole film. I mean, James Gray is like a Russian New Yorker, which she is as well. Um, so I imagine they know each other partially for that reason. <laughs> um, but one of the things that was interesting to me about this profile of him is that apparently he is absolutely hilarious in person. Like Wes Anderson tried to cast him in a movie once because he is so funny. And he was like, that's no, fascinating. not happening. And his movies are not funny. This part of the thing with this film is that like, if you're going to enjoy it, you just have to, again, sort of understand what it's doing and be willing to go along for the ride. Like, it is so earnest and sincere and serious. And there are little bits of humor in The Immigrant and The Lost City of Zed, but, like, those are also very sincere and serious films. And apparently in real life, he's just this, like, neurotic New Yorker who's, like, making jokes at his own expense all the time and is, like, really hilarious and... Like, the fact there was that one little glimpse in this movie that was immediately gone was really interesting to me. Yeah, like, the profiler was asking him, like, why aren't your films funny? And he was like, I just can't do it. Like, I'm, I can't do it. I don't know. Like, it's not possible. And I was like, Well, okay. maybe it's like, because there's a difference between, like, being funny. I mean, famously, there's a difference between being funny and being able to structure a joke. Yes. Which is, like, why some people are good comedians and some people aren't. Because a lot of good comedians, you are writing the material in advance and like comedy filmmaking is even more removed from the concept of being funny because like I think I can be funny but if you ask me to like write something funny I can't fucking do it like I can't <laughs> think I can't think of like a funny thought and then say it in the future <laughs> well also this kind of gets back to what this movie's about right is that like he's expressing his sincere emotions through the medium of filmmaking as opposed to I mean, I obviously have no idea what this man's relationship is with his wife or whatever, like, of course. But, like, being funny in that way is a defense mechanism. That's just a fact. And lots of artists are like this. They'll be very funny in real life and then manage to make, like, a write or make a sort of serious emotional piece of art. And that's the way that you can get it out. Like, I had a professor in college who was a very famous writer who was hilarious in person and all of his books were not and it, it was it's the same kind of thing, which is really interesting. Um, let's move on to the end now. So if you're going to watch this. Which strongly ties into Liv Tyler's role, which is, as we said, not just limited in terms of screen time, but limited conceptually in a way that I personally cannot hand wave away as just the fact that uh, she doesn't have much screen time because you could have a version of this film where he doesn't have a wife because it's not like she really has a role but I feel like it does actually help that he has a wife not because she's like a motivating factor which would be kind of the traditional role of that character in this type of movie but because the facade of Roy McBride is of course the type of person who would have an attractive wife right yes. it's almost like the closet right it's like that is just the framework in which he exists and of course that relationship wouldn't last because you can't have a relationship if you're not like being authentic and emotionally open. Yes. Um, but she doesn't have a fucking personality. It's like Liv Tyler appears on screen and I would say her role, if anything, is less 
nuanced than the role of the dead wife in John Wick, who basically just shows up on a cell phone video that Keanu Reeves looks sad at occasionally. (laughs) Well, this is the thing about this movie that I found depressing, is that the studio fucked this thing in a way that did not ruin the movie for me, because I enjoyed so much of it, but undercut it for sure, because... This dude is supposed to die in space. That's clearly how this movie is supposed to end. How does he not die in space? That's most space movies end with the guy dying in space. Like, that's just it's just how it works. Um, and he's, like, out in fucking Neptune. Yeah, he, like, he goes to confront his dad. Like, Tommy Lee Jones obviously is great in this movie. And I just realized we've not, like, spoken about him at all. But um... Well, it's because he basically is only in the end it's also really interesting casting because they chose like a really good photo of Tommy Lee Jones, which I guess maybe was even like a bit photoshopped, but you're actually like, yeah, there's like a real genetic resemblance. I thought <laughs> so too. I was like, how have they not been paired up in this way before? Like it really yeah. is plausible. But it's yeah. like kind of the young Tommy Lee Jones with his square jaw, but also now Brad Pitt is in his mid fifties. I saw some like dumbass post from some gossip site that was like, wow, he's aged so well. And it's like, he hasn't, he's just really handsome. He <laughs> looks 55. And in this film, you can see all his crinkly under eye skin, which is like Tommy Lee Jones's signature thing. He's like a very sort of grizzled man, right? And it's like, he really does look like him. Like they look definitely related. Yeah. So before we get to the fucked stuff, um, he goes and winds up, like, he does find his father, and his father basically... Killed his crew. He killed everybody on the base. And Brad Pitt, like, sneaks onto the rocket to get out to him, because, like, he's the one who has to go find him, which is, this is why I think they messed with something, because it's not really explained. Like, of course he wants to go, but it's, there's something that sort of doesn't quite sync up there. Like, why does he have to go? Like, But uh, Brad Pitt winds up inadvertently killing everyone on that ship and then finds Tommy Lee Jones and he he like deliberately murdered everybody on this project with him because they were they were undercutting his mission and they didn't they didn't believe and I mean he's clearly kind of lost it and um Brad Pitt finally finds him and he's basically like I don't regret anything I didn't care about you or your mother (laughs) and you're like oh my goodness like this is rough and like Brad Pitt tries to get him to come with him back to to earth and he's going to blow up the station because that's what's causing these sort of electrical things on earth and um what was so kind of affecting about it to me is that brad pitt has already kind of made the made the emotional journey by that point to realize this guy just is limited and i can't be like him and he's quite like gentle with him because instead of it being this like big confrontation it's like Tommy Lee Jones's character is old. Like he's not portrayed as being extremely frail, but you're like, this is an old fucked up man. And like by this point, Brad Pitt has acknowledged that their relationship is completely awful and corrupt. And like he was abandoned as a child and he's really fucked up as a result. So he's just kind of attempting to usher his father off this ship so he can destroy the base and like hopefully get back to earth, which is an interestingly sort of traditionally anticlimactic concept but like it works well right because this what you would sort of expect would be to have him have a big breakdown right and be like you never loved me whatever and instead he just sort of accepts that his dad sucks and that he can't do anything about it which sometimes is how it works and i just found it really really affecting which also ties into the sort of like religious allegory right it's like well you can't do any. I mean, I'm an atheist, so it's not like I'm personally experiencing this, but the sort of idea of like, you can't change this kind of divine situation, right? Like you, you can't have any effect on it. You just have to kind of accept that this is the deal and that this is a flawed and he's just like, well, okay. And again, the sort of Old Testament version of this. And so he tries to get him out and um, they're in their sort of suits in space and Tommy Lee Jones kind of fucks it up and is dragging them in the wrong direction and Brad Pitt has to sort of let him go. But he's still going to be able to blow up the base because he's sort of set the timer. And clearly at this point, he is supposed to die. Like this, he's he's supposed to be dead. And then he winds up just in this ridiculous way getting back to his ship. He like pulls off a piece of metal from something and like 
pushes through a bunch of asteroids. Which is... He like surfs through like a meteor shower. Oh my god. And then like the process of him getting back to Earth is very laborious. Like it just takes a lot of time and logistically it's just sort of, you know, like, okay. And um, then like he gets back to Earth and then they sort of cut to him giving his, you know, psychological report or whatever and it kind of reflects the first scene where he's doing this but he like seems happy now and he's like i'm going to live and love and like he's waiting at a coffee bar and Liv tyler appears and it's like oh it's gonna be great now and i was just like well you murdered like six people so that was like the final scene of the movie and when that happened i was like i can't wait to speak to morgan about this because that final scene rang so hollow to me that I was like, is this intentionally meant to be ambiguous? Because he has not gone through a therapy process because like this film is kind of about, I guess, like a therapy breakthrough. It is about him realizing that he's been repressing all his emotions and acknowledging why that's really bad and then kind of confronting his father, right? But like his problems aren't solved. And that kind of final check-in he has with the psych evaluation just feels like so pat that I was like, so basically is the ending of this meant to be that we're meant to actually accept that he's able to reconnect with his wife, which is completely absurd. Also, why would she do that? Or are we meant to assume that it's actually not worked and this whole exercise was really hollow because he's so damaged that like he can't fully... Because it's like, this should be like a long and drawn out process and it doesn't end with him being like, I've decided to be happy and then going on a fucking date with like his ex-wife who doesn't have any personality. It was just like so... It was so bad that I was like overthinking it. (laughs) Well, see, you were doing that and I was like, studio interference. Like, no fucking way. (laughs) Yeah, this is the Doylist versus Watsonian interpretation. (laughs) So, as I said, I love The Immigrant. I don't love The Lost City of Zed as much as many other critics. I would like to see it again, but the ending is amazing. Perfect. So, like, James Gray, very good at endings. The other movie of his that people really love is called Two Lovers, which I amazingly have not seen. I'm going to watch it very soon. But someone on Twitter was saying in response to me tweeting about this, like, the ending of that movie is perfect. It's like, is there good at endings? And the ending of this is just, like, so stupid that I was like, something is up here. Like, something's going on. And this was the biggest movie he'd ever made. It was an $80 million budget, which is much bigger than any of his other films. So I was doing some digging on the internet last night and found an LA Times article. Um, I will just read you a little bit of this. It says, One aspect of Ad Astra altered from Gray's original conception is the film's ending, which concludes with a scene shot earlier this year. I certainly felt that I had already pushed the envelope on the film, that in the current climate of movies, that we had been as bold as we could be, Gray said. And if this was a compromise that I had to make, then I was willing to do it to get the film out there. I mean, that's just as honest and straightforward as I can be about it. I don't, <laughs> I don't see it as a change. I see it as evolved, says Pitt of the new ending. From the beginning, when we started the script, the basic structure was there. The architecture of, we're going to the moon, then we're going to Mars, and then we're going to Neptune. But so much of it has constantly been in flux. I don't see that as change. I see that as a natural part of growth. That's some people who know how to talk to the press. Right. So he still sees the final result as the film he wanted to make. And it's like, it's about what it is that I had wanted it to be about, says Gray. There are compromises that you have to make along the way, invariably. And it's a collaboration, invariably, on this size of movie. So you're so proud of the film, which like he clearly is. He's been doing a lot of press for it and clearly is excited about the movie. Whereas what happened with The Immigrant was that it was a Weinstein company movie or like the Weinsteins bought it. And then Harvey tried to do his like Harvey Scissorhands thing and like edit it a bunch. And James Gray was just like, no, (laughs) this is not going to happen. And um, then that was why it got dumped. Like it was only released like a year after it was at Cannes or something. And it got virtually no promotion and no one has seen it. James Gray was very, very vocal about how upset he was about that whole thing. So I think if this were a situation where he genuinely was like infuriated, that we would know. But also, he made it very clear to the press that this was not his original ending, right? So he wanted us to all know that this had happened, but was still like, but I'm still proud. And I was like, right, okay. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And just like as someone who's seen a few of his movies, like I, one of his earlier films, Mark Wahlberg is genuinely just like garbage and bad, but he's grown as a filmmaker. And like, even if I didn't love The Lost City of Zed, like I 
liked and respected it. And I think his instincts in that movie are good. And obviously I love the immigrant. And like, this is just not the kind of thing that he does. Like this kind of schmaltzy bullshit. And so I was like, ah, yes. Like, mm, love a studio note. Like, okay. And if he had ended it the way he wanted to, however that might have been, like the movie still wouldn't have been perfect. I mean, we don't know what other suggestions they made. I think there probably still would have been some world building issues. And like the Liv Tyler role, even if she hadn't come back at the end, would obviously still have been really superfluous. Non-existent. Right. Like, (laughs) please. But I would have been very willing to just be like, eh, whatever. And like, I still really like love the experience of watching this movie. And it's high up on my list of best films of the year at this point. The direction was great. The Brad Pitt performance, as I said, I just was like incredibly moved by. But I got to that end and I was like, oh my god. (laughs) Why have you done this to this film? Like, come on. It just struck me as a real case study and why studios should not do this. We obviously will never know how that would affect the box office because there's no way to have a like case study with the same movie. But it's not like the protagonist dying in space, if that was indeed the original ending, is like an unknown quantity in space movies, right? Like, if people like space movies and go to this, like, that's, you know, that happens. Also, the fact that it has a happy ending, I mean, obviously it gives it, like, a more conventional structure, but it doesn't really, it doesn't really undo the fact that this is, like, a two-hour-long case study in daddy issues. Like, this is a drama. It is, like, a one-person drama that is just, like, zooming in on someone's issues. You know, it's not Guardians of the Galaxy. No, so the people who like this movie would have liked it more with the correct ending. And the people who don't like it are not going to be like, oh, well, he got back to Earth at the end. So it's so now it's great. A plus. <laughs> it's just like executives just never know what they're doing with this stuff. Not that producers never have good notes or anything. Like everyone needs an editor, of course. But this kind of situation, like it's just always the wrong decision. So um, that was very frustrating to me. I found that really maddening. If what we have said sounds like it would be appealing to you, I would still totally recommend this film if you're still listening and haven't seen it. Like I, it was, so we did the Hustlers podcast last week um, and we're actually recording these like back to back. And the, those two were two of the most pleasurable experiences I've had at the movies this year in very different ways. Like I just loved the experience of watching this. Like just aesthetically, it was so wonderful. Like the visuals were so great. And again, like I was, really moved by a lot of the emotional stuff I mean they're just both really great movies on like multiple technical levels you know like performance cinematography story choices characterization I think the one kind of technical criticism I'd have for this one is that the music by Max Richter who's like very respected and well-known composer both as a composer and as a film composer the music in this is like really a non-entity which is kind of unusual for this type of film especially after Interstellar where the music is like this colossal towering part of the movie and obviously you don't you would have like a different tone for this film but I kept kind of thinking it wasn't like bad but it was like weirdly just nothing see I like the music fine so especially Neut- near well, the it was end. neutral it was like a neutral backdrop which is not what one expects from like a big name person like, like max richter there were several moments near the end where i really noticed the music and thought it was really effective and as we have discussed before you are much more likely to notice that kind of thing than i am so i came out being like music was good so i mean you're just more <laughs> discerning than i am but um yeah as i mean as i said like i would recommend this if people like space movies but um the end frustrated me And it was sort of funny to me that all of these critics, of course, men presumably with daddy issues of their own, were like, this is a masterpiece. And like, as I said, I've loved it in many ways and will watch it again, definitely at some point. But it's intriguing to me that you would have that response to a movie where it's (laughs) clearly been fucked with. I've seen like a lot of responses to that effect that were like, this is one of the greatest films, the decade, stunning work. And I was just like, what? what what is happening like obviously brad pitt is fantastic and it deals with some interesting issues and the film is good but um i agree with morgan that it possibly says more about the critics than it does about the film which is fine because art is subjective and the quality of a piece of art is you know has a lot to do with our own emotional response to it but like it's not the fucking godfather like just i don't know i mean um like again i'd recommend this but 
really everyone should watch The Immigrant. <laughs> Rent it for like three to four bucks on a variety of services. And uh, that's one of the best <laughs> movies of the decade slash ever. So uh, maybe everyone should just rewatch that too. Anyway, uh, as I mentioned last week, like the fact that this and Hustlers are out and wide release at the same time, it's crazy. That's a much higher quality than you usually get with wide releases that are out simultaneously. So um, go see them both. Maybe this is the price that we had to pay for the Goldfinch being like the worst movie of the year. <laughs> is it, you know? Uh, I'm sorry, bargain. <laughs> I love that book. I was not expecting much of anything from the movie. It was almost funny to me how bad it was, but this is like the, you know, the scales have to be balanced by like two great wide releases. Something had to sort of take the fall for that. Thank you all for listening as always. You can subscribe to our Patreon if you would like some of our additional content, including uh, my New York Film Festival diary, which may already be up. Depends on when this is posted, Um, but there will be various posts about movies I'm watching um, in advance of the episode or episodes that we do on the film festivals. Yeah, I think next week we're going to do Succession, which I've been watching. Yes. Um, And that will be while I'm at the London Film Festival and we are going to have a deluge of London slash New York Film Festival episodes. I think we'll probably do like a two-parter where we cover a bunch of movies in each one because a lot of them are like more obscure indies. But also in the kind of short term before the episode comes out, I will be publishing various reviews on The Daily Dot and also the Joker movie, which... uh, I am professionally obliged to watch. So I will find out what I think of that We'll be covering that as well. There will be an episode on Joker. Oh, okay. That does make sense, I guess. Gavia, (laughs) it has to be done. I mean, (laughs) I will be seeing this movie out of cultural obligation. And like, I'm curious about it. And I love Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, And many people say this film is like a genius masterpiece too. So maybe I will love it is what I keep reminding myself. Also, um, we're going to be talking about it for the next five months. So buckle in. I would rather have seen it than not seen it if everyone's going to be talking about it until Joaquin Phoenix almost certainly wins an Oscar. All right. So that's that. The Patreon is at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Uh, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your various reviews, etc.? Yeah, um, the reviews, obviously, on The Daily Dot. I think we might wind up putting some stuff on Patreon, too. Because yeah. um, I think there's some stuff that I won't be reviewing that I'll want to, like, share my opinion on. Um, but yeah, social media, as always, at hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. And I am at ML Davies on Twitter. The podcast is at Overinvested Pod on Twitter. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.